0: This morning's message, as you can see from the outline in your bulletin, is identifying man's greatest need. We have come to a chapter in the Bible that is probably one of the most well-known chapters of the Bible, probably one of the most quoted portions of God's Word is found in this particular chapter. There are many needs that we have, and we do not always know what our greatest need is. For example, man has many, many needs that we are uh, indeed aware of. For example, we know that we have need of food. We know we have need of clothing. We know that we have need of rest. Our body needs that. We know we have need of money to get by. We know we have need of possessions that is necessary in this life. We know that we have the need of work. We know that we have a need for companionship. And we know we have a need of being accepted by others. That's a need that everyone has, those things that we've gone through. And that is not all certainly the needs that we do have. There are other needs that we have that we just go through life, and we're usually not conscious of them all the time. For example, such as gravity. Without gravity, where would we be? And we take that for granted every day. You and I, even as we sit in the pew or I stand before you, we have the realization that that, uh, we have a need for cell reproduction that is going on in our our bodies right now. And uh, our blood system and so forth, and the changes that are happening inside the bones and the blood, all of that is necessary. We don't think about it too often. But it is a need without which we would not be alive. We have a need for our nerve endings and though we do not like pain, we are grateful for the fact of the warning system that God has built into us so that when we do have pain we know that there is something wrong. And so we have a need of a nervous system, though again we think very little of it. We have a need for an immune system that we thank God because at this time of year we know there's colds, there's flus. Yes, the doctors assist us and help us in ways, but Our body needs to fight these things off and does that many times without us even knowing what is going on internally. And I could go on and on. We have needs, though we don't think of it too often and we don't think pleasantly of them, we have need of insects. Without insects, uh, we would be in trouble. Uh, Let me just probably take one as we get a warm day. We think of spring coming. How about the bee? Without the bee, we wouldn't have pollinization, and we wouldn't have all kinds of things going on. And yeah, we wouldn't get stung as well. But, uh, and we won't get in all those other insects, but we have needs, all kinds of needs. Some we're conscious of, some we're not conscious of. That's my point with you. And as we think about that, we can wonder, and you may think there sitting in the pew, and I may think standing up, that if there's one particular need I have, it is it is this or it is that, and I have this is my greatest need in life. And we could plug that in with all kinds of things. But let me say this to you this morning right at the outset. Whether you realize it or not, whether all men, women, boys, and girls realize it or not, the biggest need, the greatest need of every human being is to be born again. And if you want to fill in your bulletin right now with all that space, you can repeat this, born again, born again, born again. Because that's the answer to every one of those situations. Man must be born again. His greatest need, realized or not, is to be born again. Many today, this is an interesting situation that I read about this week, Many today do not see a need for religion. There are many who also do. In case you're not aware of it, Gallo just had a poll in 2008, this is a very recent poll, they just came out with the statistics on it, in which they called it the state of the state. And I read through some of it directly from their own report and so forth. And It was interesting because they did a report on the need for religion just religion in general in their life. And by the way, it was rather revealing because in the United States of America, the area that had the least need, according to the... And by the way, there was about a half a million people that participated in this survey. And the greatest area of uh, that had no need for religion was New England. Statistically, New England felt it was the place that had the least need for religion in their life. In fact, if you want to know the highest, it was Vermont. And Massachusetts was third. We are living in an area of this country in which people right now today are busy going about doing all kinds of things and see no need for religion. When I was young, everybody went to church. Today, it's either the golf course or the TV or in weather like this, skiing or whatever it is, we don't get up on Sunday morning and think of church. In fact, even born-again believers often think about what else they can do or come up with a laundry list of excuses why they can't be in church. More and more, we're becoming a society that has little need, and it's rather interesting. And so some think they're okay when in reality they're not. In our text, as we've been studying, and you know going back to last week, in verses 23 to, 30, uh, 23 to 25, we saw that Jesus had been involved in signs or miracles, and many had seen them, and it told us in that passage that many, verse 23, believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, but while they had a faith, and we talked about that last week, while they had some faith and while there was a belief, They were not what we would call saved, and they didn't know it. They didn't belong to God, and they didn't know it. They were not on their way to heaven, and they didn't know it. In fact, some of them thought they were, as we'll see this morning. We know that because in verse 24, I showed you the play on words, the Lord specifically brought out while they believed, he didn't believe their belief. That's what he's saying. He didn't believe, he didn't commit himself to them because he knew their faith was not a real faith because he could look into the hearts. He didn't just look in the surface. He can see what's inside. We just sang about that. Even our worship. In case you, you know, you look at songs and sometimes when you're learning songs, you see that and you say it's a little different and so forth. Did you look at the words? Even our worship as we come here on Sunday mornings, it's about the heart. It's not about everything that goes on on the outside. That should be a result of what's going on inside. And it's interesting because as we go on, we're not in that passage, the Lord brings to us, and I showed you how it connected to chapter 3, verse 1, and he brings us an illustration of what he's talking about. He didn't commit himself because he knew what was in man, verse 25, and then it says in chapter 3, verse 1, now there was a man, and he's going to illustrate to us an example of someone, how, although in this case God is obviously working in the man's heart, It is an illustration, biblically, right in the context of a man who had belief, but a man who was even thinking he was right with God, when in reality, not on his way to heaven at all. And so it's an illustration given to us. This man, as we saw last week, was religious. He was a Pharisee. He was a man, if you would, we would say today, of the cloth. He was a man who outwardly, had committed himself to such things as the Ten Commandments, as the laws concerning the Sabbath. He had committed himself to trying to be, if you will, quote-unquote, as good on the outside as he could possibly be. And if there was anyone that fell into a category that would be considered a separatist and one committed to God, it was a Pharisee. This man qualified. This man was a man of years, as we'll see this morning whereby he was not a young man. He was a man of experience. He had been through life. He had lived. He was mature mature enough to realize things that had happened in his life and to have seen a lot of things. His image was important to him, but this guy was not on his way to heaven. He comes to Jesus because God's working in his heart and identifies the Lord Jesus Christ. He says that, and we observe some things. As he comes to him, he's thinking he's okay. He's thinking he's right with God. He thinks he knows God. He thinks he's on his way to heaven. And so he comes and has this private conversation with Jesus by night. And I won't go into that again in verses 1 and 2. But then we see that what happens is Jesus saw right through him. And he says to him right away that Nicodemus basically... You can't even see the kingdom of heaven, verse 3. Nicodemus had an inadequate understanding of who Jesus Christ is, as do many today. Why? In verse 2, he recognized him, Rabbi, you are a teacher, putting him on basically the same level. By the way, we haven't gotten that far, but we will see, and I believe it is true, because when we get a little further in the text beyond even today, the Lord Jesus will point out to Nicodemus, Art thou, and he uses the article, the teacher, meaning he was probably the most prominent teacher of the day, even above Gamaliel and so forth, in my personal opinion, because of that. The Lord Jesus recognized this ability of this teacher, and he says, you know that, and you can't understand the things of God? You really don't know? So this guy puts Jesus on that level. He knows that God was working in his life. There are many today that say Jesus Christ is a good teacher. There are many that say that Jesus Christ is a moral man and was a good leader. But when it comes to understanding and believing that he's the only Messiah, when it comes to understanding that he's the only Savior, when it comes to understanding that he's God, people don't go that far and they have an inadequate, excuse me, inadequate understanding. Nicodemus, though older, though religious, though outwardly conforming to morality, had an improper concept of who the Messiah was and who Jesus Christ was. He, in fact, is ignorant of his own spiritual condition, ignorant of the fact that he was lost. But because God was working in his heart, he at least had enough perception as God opened up his understanding to be inquisitive enough to want to have some answers. So, how does one seek or see the kingdom of God? Well, in verses 3 and 4, when we left off in verse 3, Jesus cuts right through and comes up with this statement. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus was asked, uh, pointing out some things about the miracles, if you will. And I want you to notice again that Jesus Christ cuts right through it. He interrupts them. He doesn't even let him finish. He says, you know, you, unless God was with you and so forth, why? Jesus does not want to get bogged down. He's not interested in talking about his miracles. If that was you and I, and somebody came to us and said, "Hey, you know, you've been doing some great things," we'd oh yeah, isn't that wonderful? He doesn't want to get caught in a, getting caught up in that. Or they come to us with genealogies, or they come to us, you know. For example, you ever hear this uh, said to you? Well, you know what? Did Adam and Eve have a uh, belly button? And you have to start thinking, well, you know, let me think about that one. You know, they were the first one. And all of a sudden, we spend three days on theological discussion that have nothing to do with anything. Oh, you know, you know, where do the angels come from? And how do they get around? Wait a minute. Jesus could have been the first one to talk about the miracles and the signs. He didn't get bogged down in that. He cut right through it. Why? That was not the thing that he wanted to get distracted on. Let me give you a little practical application there. When you're dealing with somebody that does not know Christ, don't get bogged down in all of their questions. Be honest with them. Tell them, I'll try to get an answer for you, but they need to hear something else. What is it? The same thing he needed to see. You know what, Nicodemus? You can't even see the kingdom of God. Well, that's kind of deflating. Yes, it is. When it comes to salvation, that is the main issue. It is not all these other peripheral things. He starts with the adverbs, truly, truly. And by the way, this is the only uh, gospel account that you find that. It's used 23 times in the gospel according to John. In all of the other gospels, all he says is truly. He does it once. They record it that way. But truly, truly, as we see that expression, it's common with John. I'm not going to make too much about it, just to point out this. Why does he do it? Probably to show, number one, his authority, and certainly to show a point of emphasis. What is that? You need to pay attention to what I'm going to say. This is very important. And what is it? John thinks that he sees something. He thinks he sees Jesus. He thinks he sees what's going on. And yet he could not see the kingdom of God. Now again, I ended with that last week. He's not talking about the kingdom of God, which is, by the way, universal in that sense here, because obviously John is in that. I mean, Nicodemus is in that. That isn't the emphasis that Christ has here. The kingdom of God can be seen a number of different ways in Scripture. But rather than get into a total study about that the kingdom of God is used in relationship to salvation here how do you know that Pastor Dan very simply put we can all understand that because he deals with being born again and he deals with being born again and he deals with being born again and he deals with entering into and he deals with seeing the kingdom not of the realm that he was already in but in the spiritual realm so in the immediate context he's dealing with the kingdom of God in its proper understanding I believe in this passage as referring to salvation. And he says, you can't perceive salvation, nor can you even enter into salvation, unless something happens. So in the context, I think he's dealing with it in that realm. The Jews thought that they could see spiritual things. The Jews thought that because of their descendants, being descendants of Abraham, they were part of the kingdom. He probably thought because of his office, he had reached this high height and, He could possibly be all set. And all their life was spent on uh, observing the Old Testament and the laws of the Old Testament. But according to Jesus Christ, he cuts right through it and says, Nicodemus, you can even see or perceive the kingdom of God. Why? The natural man cannot understand the things of God. It's that simple. For us to be born into this world... I'm going to try to exegete the passage properly, but also give you a simple understanding. For us to enter into this world, we are given all the parts so we can relate to this world. And we can see with our eyes, we can feel, we can touch, and so forth because of a normal birth. But unless we've been born again, and I'll expand on that term in a minute, we cannot even begin to see. Why? Because in the physical sense, we cannot, in and of ourselves, see or understand the things of God. I want you to turn to a couple of verses and show you this why, and show you why, excuse me. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Let's go there. I want you to see it. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and many of you are familiar with it, but verse 14. World, By God's grace, within the next week to a week and a half, my daughter will be bringing our sixth grandchild into the world. And when that happens, that physical birth will only equip that child to live in this world, period. The, person, the child will have a spirit, but at that stage of its life will not be properly equipped to understand spiritual things yet. How do we know that? Verse 14, but a natural man, that's you and I, unless there are certain people that are aliens that came from another planet, and I assure you, though sometimes we behave that way, there are none in this room. Okay? Natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? For they are foolishness to him. And he cannot, watch this, understand them. Because spiritual things basically are spiritually appraised. And the problem is we don't have the right equipment. And I still go back, and I know there's technology today with MP3s and all of that stuff, but allow my age to show. If you had an AM and FM radio, if anyone still has them, all right? You cannot get an FM signal with an AM radio. Impossible. Maybe what I should say is you can't get cable stations if all you've got is an antenna sticking up on your TV, and I don't think anybody does. Okay? You get the, the, the point. The natural man is not equipped yet. I also want you to understand that it says something in Ephesians chapter 2. Would you go there, please? Ephesians chapter 2. Paul addressing the Ephesian saints, says this in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, and you were, what? (coughs) Dead. He's talking to people that are alive. But he says you were dead, where? In your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, and among among them we too all formerly lived. How can you live and be dead? Easy. Why? Living physically, living in the flesh, dead spiritually. In other words, what we're saying is when you're born into this world, there is no spiritual life yet. The unbeliever is spiritually dead and doesn't know it. He's walking dead. He's alive physically but not alive unto God even though he may think he is. Well, then if that's true, then how in the world can you get spiritually alive? Can you do it by... Being religious? Nicodemus was. The answer is no. Can you do it by attending any particular church? The answer is no. Can you do it by being morally good? The answer is no. They say, I throw up my hands then. You can't do it yourself. That's right. Well, then what happens? He says to him, you must be born again. There is a need for a new birth, verse 3. There is a need to be born again. There is a need for regeneration is the term we use. There is a need for a, simple, second birth, born again. There is a need, and I think this is important, and I want to emphasize it, to be born not from this world standard, but born from above. Because the word can mean to be born again, a second time. The, mer- the word also can mean to be born from above. How do you know that, Pastor Dan? Well, if you look at the immediate context, or you should say the surrounding context, get down to verse 31. Verse 31 of John chapter 3, he uses the same word, and watch what he says. He who comes from above. That's the same word as you have basically in verse 3, to be born, the word again. That's the same expression when he says, he who comes from above is above all. So what must you do? You must be born from above, and I think that puts it in perspective, though both things are true. You have to have a second birth. How do you get a second birth? Physically, he's going to address that in a second. No. It's got to happen from God. It's got to happen from God's hand. How is this possible? Now, Nicodemus was old, and watch what he says. This will help explain it. In verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? That tells you already, by the way, I believe in the immediate context, that Nicodemus was an older man. Not only had... Would he have to have had some age to be a Pharisee? But he was an older man. And he's concerned. Because what he's hearing from this teacher is that, hey, Nicodemus, you can't even see the spiritual things. And he's thinking to himself, wait a minute, a Pharisee? I'm older. Now, wait a minute. How can this happen? And he's not an ignorant man. He's not. He's just trying to even go back. And he sees an impossibility. He's not being foolish when he says what he does in verse 4. When he says... Can, he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? He knew it was impossible. That's why he's saying that. And that is a true statement. It is absolutely impossible for man to get this type of birth on his own. It can't happen. He's spiritually dead. He's unaware of what's going on. He cannot possibly start over. And I'll expand on that in, in a few moments. It's like what is said in Jeremiah. I won't turn there to that passage, but it's talking about the color of skin. Then it also uses the leopard and says, can he change his spots? And the answer is no, he can't change who you are. You and I can't change who we are. We're human beings, period, equipped for this world. Well, then how can we get into a spiritual world? It's, we have to be born from above. We have to be born again. And he helps us to expand, and as I go on, I'll expand on it. In verse 5, he then comes to the idea of entering. And by the way, let me just say this. I think there is too much made about the seeing and entering. I think as you follow through the context, the whole emphasis is simply put is this way. In order to have a spiritual birth, God must do it, period, whether that is to perceive or whether that's to enter. But he says, how can we enter the kingdom of God? In verses 5 and 6, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, in other words, listen up again, unless one is born of water, and of spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. It's got nothing to do with your first birth, per se. Now let me make some exegetical important points here, first of all, because this passage has really been misinterpreted many times, I believe. What is he talking about? Well, exegetically, first of all, because some of you may be reading, for example, from the King James, which is a great version of the Bible, by the way. But you will find that they have two prepositions there. There is not two prepositions in the context. Secondly, there is no article before the word spirit. I'm looking at the New American Standard, and it has the article, but it shouldn't be there. That's not in the original text. So there's no article. There is no two prepositions. There's only one. And what does he mean? Literally, it should read this way, of water and spirit, period. If you were to translate that literally, that's what it means. Unless a man is born of water and spirits. Some have interpreted that, that first of all, he's dealing with baptism because of the word water. And they go back and say, again, you must be baptized to be saved. That is not what the text is dealing with at all. First of all, he's not dealing with the baptism of John. I'll just be very brief on this. Because if it was John's baptism, John is gone. His baptism is stopped, so none of us could be saved. He can't be dealing with that. Second, if he was dealing with baptism, the Lord Jesus Christ failed. Why? He didn't baptize anybody. And if he was calling him to be baptized with water, then why didn't he do it? Obviously. And if he's dealing with Christian baptism, that doesn't make sense. Why? Because Christian baptism hasn't even come into play by chapter 3, and he's talking about water. So the concept of baptism, throw it away. When he's talking about water and spirit, that is not anywhere near the context. Some have said that he's dealing with two births. This is a very common interpretation. That when he's dealing with the, the water, that has to do with the, the fluid with the baby when the baby's being born. And that's got to do with you must be born physically and you must be born spiritually. And that's what he's referring to. I don't think so. I don't think it's got anything to do with that and it's far into the text. Why? And to give you it very clearly, he's only dealing with one thing. What? Verse 3, born again. What's he dealing with in verse 7? You must be what? Born again born from above. What does he got in the middle of that? Something foreign? No. You must be born what? Again. What does it mean again? Of water and, uh, excuse me, water and of spirit, period. Uh, of water and spirit. That is an explanation, that is a phrase that only means one thing. Spiritual birth periods. Because that's what fits the context. So when he says water and spirit, what does it got to do with water? Well, I think it does get to do with the cleansing effect, and John would have understood that. Nicodemus would have understood that. Water always had to do with cleansing. Where does that come from? The Word of God. Turn with me to a couple of quick passages. Go with me to Titus chapter 3. Stay with me. I'll give you some other references. I won't go through them all. Let me cover a couple. Titus chapter 3. In Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Stay with me. He saved us. Who did? God saved us. How? Not on the basis of deeds. That's what we just talked about, which we have done in righteousness. But according to his mercy, how did he do it? By the washing, what? Of regeneration. What is that? Uh, And renewing by the Holy Spirit. The washing of regeneration is the word of God that has the cleansing effect. It is the word of God that brings us the gospel, which is the power of God into salvation, to as many as believe. God has chosen the foolishness of preaching. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 26. That he might sanctify her. Who's her? The church. See? Verse 23, it says Christ is the head of the church. Then verse... 26, that he, that is Christ, might sanctify her, that is the church. How? Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, word of God. Now, I could go back to Ezekiel 36, but for the sake of time, I'm going to save it because I'm going to get to Ezekiel chapter 36 anyway when I go further on in the passage. I think that's the passage, Ezekiel 36, you can mark it down, that the Lord's referring to here. And it has to do with the connection with, as God's word comes forth, it cleanses, if you will, it washes clean. It exposes us to truth, and then the Spirit basically works through the word of God and changes to bring a person, if you will, to be born again. So to enter into the kingdom of God, to perceive the the kingdom of God, what is needed? A new birth, a birth from above, a second birth. And verse 6 helps us. Watch. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. This birth has to come as a spiritual birth. We can understand verse 6. And by the way, he's using flesh as he did it earlier. And and in the context, uh, he's already used that back uh, earlier. But the idea of being flesh is this body can only produce what? Flesh. Period. Let me ask you this. Since you've been equipped with a physical body, what if you today could look at your life and say, I could start all over again. That has the concept. If I could go back into the womb, there isn't any one of us that at some time in our life doesn't say, I wish I could do things all over again. I would change this, change that. What if you had that opportunity? What if God said, look, at all the sins that have been in your life, it's all in the past, you're starting new today, go ahead, go forward. What would you produce? Flesh. Even if you started over today. Why? Because that which is of the flesh, that is our natural being, will only produce the same thing. Fleshly results. This born again, this being born from above, is to be equipped from heaven and has to come from God. And by the way, it's rather interesting. You notice what the Lord said to them? He says to them, both in three and in five, and also in seven. He says to them, you must be born again. And it's interesting to look at the passage, by the way, because it's a plural. And I think personally that might relate in the context back to the fact that when Nicodemus came in verse two, he says, "We know." So it would be Nicodemus and also his partners that would come, and they were curious. They saw the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus didn't say, "I need to be born again." Why? Because Jesus Christ doesn't need to be born again. He's the one that produces salvation. He's the one. And he says, we, or you, referring plural. Man must be born from above. What does that mean? It has to be an act of God. The natural man cannot begin to perceive the things of God. He cannot understand the spiritual realm unless God himself opens up our understanding. Your biggest need and my biggest need and all man's biggest need is to be born from above. It is to be born again. It is to be given a new life. And I can't do that by being religious like Nicodemus was. I can't do that because I'm older. Some of you are sitting in this room, maybe, maybe in your 30s, maybe 40s, maybe 50s, maybe 80s. And you're saying to yourself, I'm set in my ways, I've learned all these things and so forth. And I got my own beliefs right. So did Nicodemus, and he was wrong. And we get set on our ways. Why? Because we're spiritually dead, and we need God to open up our understanding. And only he can. Only God can help a person to see that they are lost, and all men are sinners and have come short of the glory of God. And he didn't say, by the way, some need to be born again. Or that it's okay if you're born again. He said you must. In order to get into the presence of God. In order to not experience the fires of hell. Listen. This is the most important thing you can hear. In order not to be facing condemnation after you die. Why? Because physically you've been equipped for this world. And physically you will die. Is there life after death? Yes. Can I get to heaven by being older? No. By being religious? No. By being moral? No. How can I perceive it? How can I get in there? Only one way. That God does a miraculous work in your heart and opens up your understanding by the preaching of the word so that you see that all you can produce is unrighteousness. There is nothing good in you. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. So what does that mean? We're dependent totally upon the grace of God. And God's grace is such that he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Adam and Eve, all the way back to the Garden of Eden, made in the image and likeness of God, sinned and had to be cast out of the presence of God. And heaven, folks, is where God's presence is. And even in the future, that's where it'll be. And in order to be in his presence, We have to be brought back into that. How is that possible? This flesh cannot produce it. There are people that are committed to cults today who commit their life and all of their energy to doing everything that that cult wants, hoping that that will earn them favor with God. It does not. God can only satisfy his own righteousness by coming to earth himself That's Jesus Christ. That's why calling him a teacher was not adequate. God who came from above, came to this earth, and what did he do? Was born in the Bethlehem? Yes. God in the flesh. What did he do? Grew to a man. What happened? Went to the cross of Calvary. Why? Because he who knew no sin was without sin, who was from above, was able to satisfy a holy and a righteous God by paying the penalty and price for sin. What is that? The wages of sin is death. And he suffered the death of the cross to satisfy a righteous and holy God's in the demand of the law. Why? So that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What does that mean? That's faith. Yes. That's saving faith. It is not one based upon your own works. It is not one based upon age. It is not one based upon nationality. It is not one that's based upon anything else. And it isn't anything that you can do because the flesh will only produce flesh. But it's something in which God does, in which he takes the word of God and God works behind the scenes, miraculously opening up the heart of people like he will with Nicodemus to the understanding that Jesus Christ is God, very God, satisfied God, and this being born again or being born from above our regeneration, our salvation comes when God miraculously works in a life and opens up their understanding to who Jesus Christ is and by faith they come to trust in Jesus Christ. All the work of God. How does it happen? God is the source of life from above. The Holy Spirit is the agent, if you want to get this. God is the source of life for this world, yes. He's the source of... Life for second birth. The agency through which he works is the Holy Spirit, who you can't see and I can't see. That's what he explains even in verse 8. And it's a little play on words, in my opinion, because the word spirit means also wind, or it means breath. And you and I can relate to verse 8. Why? We can see, I just happen to look this moment out the window, and I can see those bushes moving. I can't see where the wind came from. I can't see where it's gone. But I can see the effects of it on that bush right there. That's what he's saying in verse 8. And so it's true. When God works into a heart and changes him, this isn't turning over a new leaf. This isn't going back into your mother's womb to be born again because all you will produce is the flesh again. This is an entire change that takes place from the inside out by the act of God through the agency of the Holy Spirit, and the means that he uses is the word of God. Why? Because the word of God is the truth of God and helps us to understand that we are sinners and helps us to understand that Jesus Christ is the only way, truth, and life. No one can come unto the Father but by him. He's the only one through which people have to place their faith. And the faith is the effects. When a person has truly believed in their heart, have trusted in God, just like the wind, you will see the effect of the Spirit of God, and that's what he means. One who is born of the Spirit, you will see the effects of that faith. Now, there's always concern about the perception and the faith and the belief. Yes, it's all of God, and I believe it happens just like that instantaneously. And while there's sometimes a concern about the chronology of it and so forth, logically we can look at the chronology but the chronology, the way it happens in God's eyes is God uses the word of God and works in a heart just like that to help them to realize. Sometimes it's through an awful lot of knowledge of the word of God. Sometimes it's through one verse. Sometimes it's through situations where the people have come in contact with the word of God. But that's God's work. And some say, well, if it's all of God, and then that means that it's election, which it is, well, I don't know that I'm saved. Is God working in your heart right now? Well, I don't know if I can come to him. Come unto the Lord Jesus Christ, all you that are labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest and you'll find rest for your souls. All that come to me I will in no wise cast out. God uses the word of God to bring us to conviction. And that's known as repentance. Where we realize that there is nothing. Listen, if you get nothing else out of the message, it's this. When he talks about to be able to perceive, you must be born from above. To be able to enter, you must be born of water and spirit. Born from above. Don't marvel at this. You must be, verse 7, born from above. You must be born again. How does that happen? It's when God brings conviction that we're a sinner and the flesh produces nothing. There is no way you could ever satisfy a righteous and a holy God. Only he could satisfy himself through Jesus Christ and through exercising faith in the finished and completed work. It isn't Jesus Christ as a teacher. It isn't Jesus Christ at the cross plus me being good. It isn't Jesus Christ plus reading my Bible. It isn't Jesus Christ plus me trying to be righteous and keeping the Ten Commandments. It's Jesus Christ and his satisfying work and his resurrection to get victory over death alone. And how do I perceive that? By God opening up your understanding. As he did for me and many that are in this room. Why? So that we have nothing to boast of. So being born again is a new life. It's a spiritual life. Not one that I can earn. Not one that any flesh can earn. Not one that anyone can do for. It's simply to receive. And when that faith is real, it'll be seen. And its effects will be seen because the life will belong to Christ. And then, truly, you have been bought from above. Your life is not your own. You belong to him. You live for him, and it will be seen in the life. Too many today, you heard me a couple of weeks ago give a very strong message regarding even people that have been attending this church for years. It is so easy to perceive Jesus Christ as a religious person. It is so easy to perceive That by reading my Bible, I will be saved by attending church. If the transaction is real in your heart and you are born from above, you didn't do it. God did it. And when God did it, it will be changed and you will realize that you are no longer your own. You belong to him. And what you will do is produce in your life a thankful heart that is simply praising God. Why did he choose me? He had no right, no reason to do it. He had every right to do it. And he simply did. And you ought to be grateful. If you're here without Christ, now what do I do? You must be born again. What does that mean? Jesus Christ died on the cross of Calvary, satisfied the righteousness of God, rose from the dead, and by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved. Come, repent of anything that you're trying to do to satisfy God. Repent of your sin. That's what the message was. Repent from the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that repentance isn't my earning salvation. It's believing on the one that Jesus, that God had sent, and that's Jesus Christ. Your greatest need, my greatest need, the greatest need for this world is to be born again. To be born not by man's effort. To be born not by flesh and blood. Not to turn over a new leaf, but to be born from above. As God works in the heart, and as we preach the gospel, And what am I to do? Sit back? No. Preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because whosoever believeth on him shall be saved. Leave the rest to God. It is the power of the word of God. It is bringing forth the gospel. That's the message that man needs to hear. Not to be more religious. Not to try to earn his way to satisfy God. But to realize that he's got nothing to offer God. He can do nothing in the flesh. And God has to work a transaction in his heart might you come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that you might be saved. Let's pray. Our Father in God, people use this term born again today to talk about advertisements, to talk about companies, when in reality we're dealing with a spiritual birth. It is absolutely impossible for man to be in your presence without a spiritual birth something that takes place in the heart. Father, it's very possible that in this room there are people that have been relying on religion, relying on their age, relying on their goodness, relying on their social status or what they can do. Help them to see that there's absolutely nothing they can do to earn salvation. What they need to do is believe the word of God. That to be born from above, to be born again, is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The only one that you've sent, the one that you sent to die on the cross of Calvary, to satisfy a righteous and holy God. We thank you that you loved us so much that you sent him. For those of us who have trusted in him, we pray, Father, you'd help us to appreciate the fact that we are changed because of something you've done. Help us, Father, to live for you. Help us, Father, to be appreciative of this birth that we have that has enabled us to be in the kingdom of God to be in the presence of God, to not suffer for the wrath of God, but the blessings of God for all eternity. Help us, Father, to proclaim the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us to bring the message that man must be born again to this world and not get bogged down into so many other things. And if Father, would leave the results to you. Thank you and praise you for the opportunity to be in the Word and to learn from Nicodemus, a man who knew of Christ, a man who believed in his miracles, but in a man who had to have his spiritual understanding open and who later on you will miraculously open up that he might come to trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. Thank you for this time. We pray these things in Jesus' name.